0: Matthew chapter 11, we're going to be in verses 28 through 30. We're going to finish chapter 11 tonight. Next week, Lord willing, we'll begin chapter 12. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, Jesus said, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We ended our last session last week by beginning to unpack these verses. And as far as we got, though, was to point out that Jesus offers us His yoke as opposed to the yoke of slavery of trying to keep the law. So what I'm going to do real quick is just a real quick recap of where we ended up last week. Go to Gal- uh, Galatians chapter 5 and look at verse 1. We're going to show you four passages of Scripture that going to help us to undersee that trying to get, to get saved by being good enough and trying to keep the law is a yoke of slavery. In Galatians chapter 5, look at verse 1. Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Talking to Christians who had put their faith in Jesus Christ, but now some people are trying to teach them that, but like, yeah, you put your faith in Jesus, but you still got to keep some of the law, got to keep some of the commandments, and you got to be circumcised, and you got to follow the law of Moses. And Paul's saying to them, look, don't go back. You've been set free through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't go back to a yoke of slavery. Go to Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, we see this same problem arise as some believers went down from the Jerusalem church to the Antioch church, Jerusalem church being a lot of Jews, the Antioch church being mostly Gentile. And in Acts chapter 15 verses 1 through 11 it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, and that's what they said, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, and the apostles, and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, I call them the religious crusties in the church, the, the, the long to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Just as they will. Again, here we see the scripture describing trying to keep the law as a yoke of slavery. Go to Galatians again. Go to Galatians chapter 3 and look at verse 10. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Not only is it a yoke of slavery, if you're trying to be right before God by keeping His law, you're under a curse. Why? Because the Bible says, the law said, Cursed is everyone who doesn't keep every bit of it. You all know James chapter 2, verse 10. And if you don't, let me quote it to you. James says in James chapter 2, verse 10, If we're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point... We're guilty as if you broke it all. So Jesus comes on the scene and he says, Come to me, all who are weary of trying to keep the law of God and failing. Come to me, all who are weary of, of the heavy burden of the law's perfection demands that you cannot bear. Come to me, he says, because I want to give you what? Rest. Take my yoke. And we're going to deal with that in a little bit. Take my yoke and learn from me, for my yoke is easy, Jesus says, and my burden is light. And then he says what? You will find what? You will find rest for your souls. So I'm going to ask you a question. How do we put on Jesus' yoke? If Jesus is saying, I I want you to be under the yoke of slavery anymore, under the law and its curse and its demands. I want you to be under my yoke. How do you put on Jesus' yoke? You accept the grace, you receive it by faith. Go to Romans chapter 3. How you put on the yoke of Jesus is you put it on by faith. Go to Romans chapter 3 and look at verses 9 through 24. Paul's been laying out that everyone in the world is guilty, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. And he says this in verse Nine, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongue, sorry, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruined. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, do y'all notice in your Bibles that those verses that I just read to you look a little bit different from the rest of the scriptures? The tabs, if you will, are a little bit different. Any idea why? These are all quotes from the Old Testament. Very good. When, when, when they quote from the Old Testament, they do that. So Paul wasn't sitting there saying, oh, I think people are wicked and, and no one's good and their throats an open grave. He's quoting from all the Old Testament passages that have been saying all along that man in and of himself is wicked. Don't think that man becomes wicked. We're born that way. It's in our nature. And I've said this before, but I'll remind you, if you've had children, you did not have to teach them to lie. You didn't have to teach them to steal or to, to hit or to bite. It's in us. It's not because of our environment or all this kind of stuff. Adam and Eve were in a perfect environment and they still sinned. It, it's in us. We'll look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may, help, may be held accountable to God. Now, a lot of people think that only the Jews were under the law. Because they're the ones who got the law of God. But jump back with me real quick to, to Romans chapter 2. And look at verse 12. In Romans chapter 2 verse 12 it says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who don't have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men, By Christ Jesus. So here he said that the Gentiles who never had the law of God still are going to be judged by the law of God because he's put it on their hearts. Every person in the world is born with a sense of right and wrong. Now, what you might consider right and wrong might be different from what I consider right and wrong. But I'm going to ask you a question. Um, Have you ever gone against what you in your own heart thought was right and wrong? Have you ever gone against it? Well, whether you've ever heard the law of God, he's already revealed to you that you're a lawbreaker. And that's why in this section, if you were to go to chapter 3, verse 1, and we touched on it last week, he talks about how the Jews had an advantage because they had received the law and they had seen the covenants and all the things that God had revealed to them. And as we saw last week, they're going to be held in higher accountability on the judgment day because of how much light they received. But then he goes in chapter chapter 3, verse 9, as we saw, are the Jews better off because of this? No, everyone's guilty. Both Jews and Greeks are under the law. Now listen to verse 19 again. Romans chapter 3, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So who's under the law? Jews or Gentiles? Both. We're all under the law. Every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, again, like we talked about before, why are those who try to be right before God by trying to be good, be a good person and try to keep God's law? Why are they under a curse? Because the Bible says cursed is every one who doesn't do it perfectly. If you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. And everybody, hopefully, if they're honest, would admit they've not kept it perfectly. But who can? That's the point. If you're trying to be right before God by being, keeping his law and trying to be a good person, you're under a yoke of slavery and you're under a curse. But look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How do we put on the yoke of Jesus Christ? By faith in believing that what Jesus did was live that sinless life, that life that could not be lived by us. He did never sinned. He kept the law perfectly. And then God punished him instead of us. And he rose from the dead by his own power. That's how you come to him By faith, you put on his yoke. We'll go back to Galatians and look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. In Galatians chapter 3, look at verses 11 through 13. Right after that verse that we just read earlier, he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. All right. He's quoting from Hosea. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you think you're going to be right before God by being good, you're putting your faith in your own works. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is also written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles as well, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. When we come to Jesus, we put on his yoke. By, by faith. Go to Hebrews chapter 3. Look at verses 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest Now take care brothers lest there be any of you uh, that there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. They weren't able to enter his rest because of unbelief. Keep reading. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And again, he appoints a certain day called today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from him. His works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, the Hebrew writer goes on and he says, Look, as much as that God offered them rest and they didn't receive it because of unbelief, that wasn't the only rest that was going to be offered. Because many, many years later, God through the David prophesied when David wrote in the book of Psalms, today when you hear his heart. Don't resist as you did in the rebellion. And then he goes on and says, if Joshua had given them rest, there wouldn't still be a future rest. And now there still is. There's a rest for those who are going to enter by faith. They didn't enter that rest because they wouldn't believe. And the same thing happens for us. If we don't believe that Jesus will give us this rest, we're going to miss out. But then he also said this. God rested at the end of his what? At the end of his work, he worked for six days. Then on the seventh day, he rested from his works. And then he adds this and he says, all of us who believe in Jesus have rested from our works. How many people today are still trying to be good enough? They haven't entered his rest. Now, I'm going to share something with you that I've shared in times past, and I want to make sure I clarify it very well, because as I travel around the country and have now in this traveling ministry for almost 15 years... I meet a lot of people who are church members. Notice I didn't say Christians. They may be. I don't know. But I have over the years talked to a lot of people who have been church members for a long time. And I'll meet with them at church and we'll talk or we'll go out to dinner before or after. And all the time I love to ask people as I get with them, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And what is amazing to me is how many people answer with, I hope so. You'd be amazed how many quote unquote Christians, church people say, I hope so. And I say to them, why do you hope so? When first John chapter five, verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is what they say. They say, well, I believe in Jesus and I'm trying to live a good life. Have they entered his rest? No, they haven't rested from their works. They're still thinking it's a little bit of believing in Jesus and a little bit of my being good enough. Folks, you want to enter his rest? Jesus says, come to me. You are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. You've got to come to me, though, in full faith. And that's why... The Hebrew writer is writing to these Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism. And that's why the reading sounds so harsh sometimes. And a lot of Christians try to take the book of Hebrews and teach that you can lose your salvation. As you're going to see later on tonight, Uh, if you truly are saved, the Bible says you're guaranteed your inheritance and the spirit of God's the one holding on to you. But he has to warn those who are out there thinking that they might be okay, but they're trying to be good enough. And I, as I would say to these people as I talk to them, if you think it's part Jesus and part you, you probably don't have it. Because you're not resting in Christ. Folks, if you were to ask me that question, if I died today, would I go to heaven? I can look you in the eye, and the answer is yes. But it has nothing to do with how good I've been. It has everything to do with the fact that I put my full faith in what Jesus did. Oh, the cool news is, um, his spirit testifies to my spirit that I'm his. He's confirmed it in my heart. I've shared this with some of you. Some of you haven't heard this, but whenever you talk to someone and tell them, you know, you're going to heaven when you die, there's going to be one or two people that are going to say, well, how do you know? How do you know? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had chocolate ice cream? What does it taste like? OK, he said chocolate, but that doesn't help me any. All right. So if you've had chocolate ice cream, yeah. you know what it tastes like. Yeah. What does it taste like? Exactly. That's the answer, Mark. God has made this rest, this salvation thing in such a way that we know we are saved, but we can't explain it to anybody because God's made it that way on purpose. All we're to do is, if you were to get me to try to find out what chocolate ice cream tastes like, what would you say? Here's the spoon. Try it for yourself. Because you would say, well, it tastes like, you can't describe it. I could try to question whether or not you know, but the only way you get me to know is say, here's the spoon in the same way. Folks, don't try to convince anybody that you know. You say, here's the spoon. His name is Jesus. Try him for yourself. Because those of us who have put our full faith in Jesus and have been sealed by his spirit, who have had his spirit confirmed that we're his children, we've entered that rest. We know that if we die, we're good. I hope there's nobody in here saying, I hope so when it comes to your death. Put your full faith in Jesus Christ. Come to Him. But now, go back to Matthew chapter 11. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 28 again. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then what does He offer us? No, what's the very next thing He says? Take my what? No. Now hang on for a second. Didn't we just talk about the fact That the the law was a yoke of slavery and it was a burden. And if you're under it, you're under a curse. Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest, but I want you to take my yoke. Don't miss this. Even though Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light, it's still a yoke and a burden. Too many, again, I'm going to put that in quotes, quote unquote Christians, because only God knows where they really are. Too many quote-unquote Christians try to receive Jesus by faith just to escape hell, but their lives are lived for themselves and not for the one who died for them. There's a lot of people that think, well, I believe in Jesus. So I'm going to heaven when I die. But they don't show any evidence that they've given their life to Jesus. They live for themselves. Let me just share some scriptures that kind of say that if you truly have rested, if you truly put your faith in Christ, he's in charge of what you do in your life, not you. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Second Corinthians, chapter five, verse 15. Paul says, and he, this is Jesus. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Did you catch that? He died for everybody so that those who do live, who those who enter by faith would no longer live for themselves, but live for the one who died for them and was raised. Go to Luke chapter 9. Listen to Jesus' own words here. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Jesus said, verse 23 of Luke 9, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, remember he said, come to me. If anyone would come after me and come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, be willing to die daily, And follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And he's not just talking about losing your life physically. He's also saying you no longer in charge of what happens in your life. When you come to Jesus, don't lose sight of the fact that it is still a yoke and it's still a burden. We'll deal in a little bit with why it's easy and why it's light. But don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus offers us a yoke as well. We are attached to him. And we're now under his control. By the way, have you ever noticed how many of the uh, Bible writers describe themselves as a slave of Jesus Christ, a bond of Jesus Christ? Go to Philippians chapter three. <clears throat> Philippians chapter three, look at verses seven through nineteen. Paul, in Philippians 3, verse 7, says this. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, listen to what he says now. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with their mind set on what? Earthly things. things. He says, watch out for those in the church who like to talk a good game. But actually, they're living for themselves. Those people have not yoked themselves to Jesus Christ. They have not received his yoke. Jump over in one book to Colossians. Look at chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 10. If then, or since you have been raised with Christ, he's talking to believers, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ, excuse me, in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Let me ask you a question. I already told you the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Who is he writing to, believers or unbelievers? He's writing to believers. And he's saying, you've already put on Christ, but you also need to put off the old self. How do we do this? This is going to make, help me see whether or not you've got the last few lessons. Good for you, Jeremy. On a daily basis. Did you catch he's writing to Christians and saying, look, you've been put in Christ. But we have to learn on a daily basis to deny ourselves and say yes to the spirit. That's why Jesus said, if anybody's going to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. You see... The Bible is very, very clear, and I'll show you some scriptures that deal with that in a little bit. That once you receive Christ, you are signed, sealed, and delivered, if you will. You are sealed by the Spirit of God. Yet at the same time, he's left us in these human bodies that are still under the curse of sin. They're decaying and falling apart, which is evidence of the fact that they're still under sin. And we are being renewed day by day, but we have to choose on a daily basis. Those of us who have come to Jesus by faith... We have to choose on a daily basis to submit to his yoke and to his burden. We have to choose to say no to our fleshly desires to live for self, but to live for the one who died for us. And I wrote in my notes here, OK, Jim, I see what you're saying. But then how then is Jesus's yoke easy and his burden light? To be honest, this sounds hard and heavy. The difference, folks, is the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of all believers. Jesus' yoke is still a yoke. You're no longer living for yourself when you give your life to Christ. You are living for Jesus Christ. It's still a burden. But it's easy and it's light when you understand the power of the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do is I want to take you to some promises that God made to the nation of Israel in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Go back with me to Ezekiel chapter 36 and look at verses 26 and 27. God has made some amazing promises to the nation of Israel, things that he's going to do for them at the end of the tribulation period. When those who survived the tribulation period, Book of Romans says, at that point, all Israel that's left is going to be saved During the tribulation period, two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed. One-third is going to be spared. And all Israel who survived the tribulation period is going to be saved at that time. Listen to the promises God made to the nation of Israel at that time. Ezekiel 36, starting in verses 26 and 27. He says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Look at that. You go a little earlier, you're going to see after he says he's going to take them from the nations and gather them and bring them into their own land. Verse 25 said he's going to sprinkle clean water on them and they're going to be clean from all their uncleanness and from their idols. He's going to cleanse them and he's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. He's going to put within them and he's going to remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And he will put his spirit within them and cause them. He's going to actually make them walk in his statutes and be careful to obey all his rules. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31. Another promise to the nation of Israel that's going to be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation period. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. God says to Israel, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. pretty cool promises here. He says to Israel, "This Israel that survives the tribulation, I'm going to erase your sin. I'm going to wash you clean. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to write my law in your hearts, and I'm going to cause you to obey my rules and my commands. Now, people say, okay, Jim, why would you show that to us? That's a promise that God's going to fulfill to Israel in the end times. Well, if you're asking that question, you don't understand Ephesians chapter 3. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, Look at verses 1 through 6. I want you to see this. This is pretty cool. In Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for who? Jesus Christ. Look at that, man. He gave his life to Jesus even though that meant imprisonment. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, let me show you something that other people haven't understood, but God revealed to me. All the promises for Israel are already ours in Christ Jesus, those of us who are in the church. Like Mark brought out earlier, it says in Romans chapter 11 that we've been grafted in. And the promises made to Israel are ours now. Go back to Colossians, or, or forward if you will, in two books in your Bible, to Colossians chapter 1. Look at Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Paul says now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Folks, don't miss that. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. All the promises that were made to Israel that are going to be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation, they're yours and mine now. He's, going to, he's erased our sin, has He not? Has He not washed us clean? Has He not put His Spirit within us? He's already, given us heart. he's already given us the new heart. And He's written His law in our hearts, and He will cause us to obey His commands. That's why His yoke is easy and His burden is light. But a lot of Christians are ignorant to this. And that's why Paul wrote what he wrote in Ephesians 1. Look at verses 13 through 23. Ephesians 1 verse 13. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, To the praise of his glory. So if you've been sealed by the spirit of God, you're guaranteed you're going to be in heaven. Well, why did the Hebrew writer then said, but you better hang on to the end or else you won't have a part in this. Because there are many who profess it who don't actually possess it. That's why the, Jesus in the parable of the soil said, some seed falls on the rocky soil, springs up, looks like salvation, but when trouble comes, and I'll get right to you, it goes away. They fall away because they have no root. Some seed falls on the, thor- the thorny soil, and it springs up and looks like salvation, but the cares of this world choke it. It's only the seed that falls on the good soil that's really saved, and over time it produces a fruit. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you know, when the 144,000 were sealed. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to be sealed. Okay, Yes, I see what you're saying. Go ahead. Uh, People are Christians sealed. They aren't the first people sealed. They're the first Jews sealed. Right. Yes. But But at that point, the church is already gone. Those of us who have been sealed by the Spirit are going to be raptured prior to the 144,000 getting sealed. Can Christians be sealed and still sin? I'm sorry? How can Christians be sealed and still sin? A Christian can still sin. Oh, without question. Oh, yeah, sealed Christian still sins. All the sealing does is protect you from the evil one. Okay. So he can't lose your salvation. I thought it meant that you couldn't sin. Oh, no, not at all. Think about the fact that Peter uh, says, uh, when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, hey, flesh and blood hasn't opened your eyes. My father's opened your eyes. But he immediately goes from being under the control, if you will. He wasn't sealed at that point. Uh, oh, so you can't it- I'm sorry. Are you sealed when you receive the Holy Spirit? Now we're sealed when we receive the Holy Spirit. When you trust Christ as your Savior. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, keep keep go back and read this verse again. Uh, let me let me what do you believe Paul was the guy that wrote this? This is a really good question. Can you be sealed and still sin is a great question. Let me ask you this question. The Paul wrote Ephesians here, right? OK, if you remember, also Paul wrote Romans and in chapter seven, he said, the things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. And he says, "It's no longer me who do it; does it? It's sin living in me." He, so it's obvious that he's talking about after salvation. There's been a trans- transition, if you will. So as long as we're flesh on earth, we- you're still gonna sin. I will put it to you this way, though: if you're truly sealed by the Spirit of God, you will not become sinless, but you will sin less because of. It's right. You will want to sin and you will, or else he'll just take you out of here. The Bible says there's sin, people that, as Christians who keep sinning, he'll just take them home early. So even after we've sinned, we, knowingly we've sinned. Yes. You don't lose your salvation. The Bible is working on us to perfect us. Yes. Let's keep reading now. Go back to verse 13, and maybe this it, will answer your question. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, Paul says, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, and having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. In other words, my prayer is now that you've been sealed, that you would start to understand, and God would give you revelation and understanding to really start to see All that is now yours because of you being sealed by the Spirit of God. And he then describes this power in verse 20. At the end of verse 19 into verse 20. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, And he, God, put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Another answer to your question real quick. We're going to chase this rabbit because it's catchable and it's worth worth chasing. Go to James chapter 4. Writing to believers. Look at verse 4. James chapter 4, verse 4. He's writing to believers, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Here he's saying that we can grieve the spirit and quench the spirit, but he's not going to take his spirit from us because once he seals us, we're his. But Christians still sin. When we become friends with the world, then he goes on and says he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll exalt you. He's writing to Christians and he says, hey, don't you realize that when you sin, when you actually are friends with the world, You make God jealous because of the spirit that he's put in you? We're sealed. But that doesn't mean that we don't sin. But we also have that same power now that rose Jesus from the dead living within us to give us victory over the flesh and over sin. And so what I want you to understand is this. The reason Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light is because when we, on a daily basis... Enter the rest that he's offered us and say yes to his spirit and no to the flesh. He empowers us to do the things that he asks us to do. Let me show you two more passages that kind of illustrate this. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and look at verses 16 and 17. Now Paul is the master of the run on sentence. I thought I was. Paul's better at it than me. I am close. I've tried to catch up with Paul a few times in my writings. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verses 16 and 17. Paul says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Because Paul ch- chased a rabbit there a little bit, we miss what this says. So I'm going to take out that section where he describes God as the one who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Listen to what he says taking that out. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Who's doing the work? It's Him. He's the one who establishes us in every good work and word. Too many Christians say, I'm trying. You don't get it if you're trying. You need to rest from your labor. You don't just rest from your labor in order to get to heaven on a daily basis to let him live his life through. You have to realize I have to again say no to my flesh and yes to the spirit, not to be saved again because I'm sealed. But on a daily basis, now I have to choose to rest in his power to do what it is that he wants me to do, whether it's saying no to sin or other things that we're going to get to in just a second. Keep reading. Chapter three. Look at verses four and five. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Folks, the promises for Israel are ours now. We have His Spirit within us, and He'll cause us to act and to, and to move. He'll move us to, to obey His statutes. He's written His law in our hearts, but we have to daily choose to deny our flesh and say yes to the Spirit. You don't have to get saved again every day. You've already been sealed, and you've, been de- you've gotten that deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. But now on a daily basis, that's why Paul said, after hearing of your faith and your love for the Lord, love for each other, my prayer is that God would open your eyes to the hope to which he's called you, this great inheritance that we have, and the awesome power available for us who believe. Jesus' is yoke and easy and his burden is light because it is Jesus himself Through the power of the Holy Spirit, who will empower us to do the work that He has for each of us to do. By the way, did you know that's how Jesus lived? While He was on the earth, even though He was God, He did nothing of His own power. He could have, but He didn't. He took the role of a servant, He emptied Himself and submitted Himself on a daily basis to the Father. Could He have done things on His own power? Definitely. That's why he was tempted in the wilderness when Satan says, turn these stones to bread or jump off the pinnacle of the temple. These are things he could have done. It wouldn't have been a temptation if he couldn't do it. But these are things he could have done, but he chose not to live in his own strength, but he chose to submit himself to the Father. Go to John chapter 14. Look at verses 8 through 10. In John chapter 14, look at verses 8 through 10. Philip says to him, says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe, listen closely, that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus himself lived this way that he wants us to live. On a daily basis, he submitted himself to the Father and the Father's will. And he only spoke what the Father had him speak, by the Father's power and by the Father's authority. And whatever he did wasn't him doing it, but the Father doing it through him. We're in chapter 14. Go to verses 15 through 20 now. Listen to this awesome promise. Remember how I read how Jesus said, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he'll give you another helper. That word another is another of the same kind in the Greek, just like me, another helper to be with you forever. By the way, is your word helper capitalized like mine is? I wonder why. Because it's God. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you and yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I'm in my father and you're in me and I'm in you. Go ahead. The Holy Spirit is God. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all one God. But they manifest themselves in three different forms, if you will. Three different persons is the better way to put it. So that's why Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send you the Holy Spirit. And in that day, you're going to realize that I'm in you. So is God the Father in us, or is Jesus in us, or is the Holy Spirit in us? The answer is yes. (laughs) It's all the same. But he has different roles, if you will. It's all one God. Now, here's the cool thing. We now, on a daily basis, have the ability to live like Jesus if we choose to, by faith, let him live his life through us. And it's such a cool thing when you start to learn how to do it. Because you actually start to realize, well, that wasn't me. Where did that come from? And you start to sense and experience the power of God. That's why in 1 in, uh, uh, Peter chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, verses 10 and 11, it says, whoever speaks, use whatever gift you have to to serve one another. And whoever speaks is one speaking the oracles of God. And whoever serves with the strength that God provides so that in everything, God may be glorified. So I want to go even deeper, though, in the time we have left. We only have 10 minutes left in our study. And right now I'm going to try to cover something that usually takes me two hours. But God gave the grace last night and he'll give the grace again tonight. Since coming to Jesus by faith and resting from our works is how we put on the yoke of Christ and it requires submission to him. This is why, like I said earlier, many of the authors of the books of the Bible describe themselves as slaves or bondservants of Jesus Christ. I want to take you even deeper. Not only do we surrender ourselves to him in holy living. We also surrender our plans and goals for our lives And we submit to the plan and the purpose for which he has saved us and he wants to use us. Some Christians only get as far as they think that being a Christian is spending all your time trying to let Jesus give you victory over sin. I hurt for you if that's as far as you get in your walk with Christ. You've already been saved and we still do struggle with sin like you point out. But most Christians get stuck just trying to have the victory over sin. And they don't move into a deeper understanding. If I quoted to you Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you could probably quote it with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, which is the gift of God, not of of works, so that no one can boast. Can anybody quote verse 10? (laughs) For we are, go ahead, say it. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, listen, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Not only did God save you so that you would go to heaven and enter his rest that way, not only did he save you so that his spirit would come and inside to you and give you victory over sin, he, before he saved you, had a purpose and a plan for why he saved you. And he actually wants to accomplish by his spirit those things that he's got for you to do. Some people are asked to do more than others. That's why in the parable of talents, some got five, some got two, another got one, each according to their ability. That's why in Romans chapter 12, verses three through eight, it says, don't let anybody think of themselves more highly than they ought, but each with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. If your gift is preaching or prophesying, use it in proportion to your faith. Folks, listen to me. There's a deeper walk. You want to really experience God's rest? It's more than just being, I know I'm going to heaven. That's wonderful. It's more than just knowing you can have victory over sin. And that's a wonderful thing, too. Believe me, I myself spent most of my early years of my Christian life just trying to have victory over sin. Once I started moving past that, I still struggle with sin and I'm tempted. But let me just tell you, I'm sinning way less than I ever did. I'm not sinless, but I'm sinning less. God's also shown me there's more to my rest than that. Go to Mark chapter six. In Mark chapter 6, look at verses 7 through 9. And he, this is Jesus. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now he charged them to take nothing for their journey, except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Now, Hang on for a second. If you remember back in Matthew 10 in our study, when Jesus sent out the 12 two by two, he sent them out on journeys that were going to take days and weeks and months. He's going to go from town to town and village to village. And whenever you go, let your peace go out. If it's received, stay. If not, move on. This was going to take them a while. Don't you think you're going to get sweaty? Don't you think they're going to get hungry? But he says to them, you got a walking stick? That's fine. You got sandals? That's good. Listen closely. You cannot bring any money. Don't bring any money. Don't bring a bag and don't bring any food and don't bring a change of clothes. What was he trying to teach them? Dependence on him watching go out to do what he's asked you to do, watching him provide. That's why Jesus, when he went from John 14, where we talked about how the going to the helper is going to be in us. In chapter 15, he teaches on abiding and he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He sent him out on trips that were going to take days, weeks, and months. And he said, intentionally, don't bring anything. Watch what I do. Chapter 6, look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Did they learn the lesson? No, they didn't get it. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and what? Rest a while. Now, if you know the story, this is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. They get in the boat, the disciples hear the word rest, and they're thinking hammock. But the Bible says as they get in the boat and they start heading to the other side of the lake, the crowd of people sees where they're going, they recognize where they're going, and they all run around the lake and get there ahead of them. So when by the time Jesus and the disciples get there, the crowd's already there, Jesus begins to teach them, And then the disciples finally come at the end of the day and they say it's late in the day. Send them away so they can get something to eat. And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, you feed them." Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus intend for them to get a little break, but he didn't know the crowd was going to be there? Of course he did. There's nothing that he doesn't already know. He's omniscient. He's God. He knew the crowd was going to be there. Then why did he offer them rest? Uh, you're going to see that rest is not what we think it is. Rest does not come when you get a sabbatical. Rest does not come when you get a vacation or a nap. Please don't hear me wrong. I think naps are awesome. <laughs> I'm good at naps. I've actually learned that naps are valuable. I nap almost every day at some point, short, long, whatever, depending. It's a great thing. Jesus slept in the boat. I'm good with that. If Jesus can nap, I'm nap. But rest does not come... When you stop doing things, rest comes, listen, and I'll illustrate it to you from the story and others. Rest comes when you find out what it is that Jesus has got for you to do and you do it with his power. You do only what he's got for you to do. Take my yoke upon you, not the yoke of the nominating committee, not the yoke of other church members who think you ought to be doing some things. But take the yoke that Jesus has for us, some are five, some are two, some are one. And when you realize what it is that God has gifted you to do, he's given us all different gifts and abilities. And you do what he's asked you to do by his power. You're resting. And I can tell you right now, I'm resting right now. Why? Because I'm doing what he's asked me to do. And I ain't thinking about Jim. I'm trusting in him. Now, when I first started preaching, I didn't rest. When I first started preaching, I would study and pray and prepare, which I still do. I mean, I still got notes. But I would always be panicked about how good I was going to do. My poor wife, for I don't know how many years, every Sunday, I'd drive, drive home from lunch and say, how did I do I was focusing on my ability and my strength and trying to do the best I could until God began to teach me how to preach in the power of the spirit and teach in the power of the spirit. You've heard me say many a time as I pray ahead of time, thank you for what you're going to do. Why? Because I believe that God will do what he's asked me to do as I trust in him. They didn't learn the lesson, though, when he sent them out two by two. So he says, guys, he doesn't say this part out loud. He says, you didn't get it. Come get in the boat with me and let's. Let's learn about rest. They get there, the crowd's there, Jesus teaches them, the disciples say, Send them away so and get something to eat. Jesus says, You feed them. Of course, their first reaction is to try to fix it in their own strength, right? Eight months' wages won't be enough to give everyone a bite. And what does Jesus do? He says, What do you got? John's gospel shows us that a little boy had a little lunch, if you will. Now, you remember when we were in Sunday school? How many of you remember flannel graph? You remember flannel graph? The old folks in the room remember Flannel graph Sunday School. Do you remember how when we studied on the five loaves and the two fish, it was five loaves of bread like Wonder Bread and two like Grouper? A little boy wasn't carrying five loaves of Wonder Bread and two Grouper. Most likely it was five little biscuits and two sardines. And the disciples say, how is this going to be enough to feed so many? And Jesus tells them to go out by faith into that crowd of over 5,000 people and tell everybody to sit down in groups of 50 or 100. The disciples do, not knowing how it's going to work. And God, by his power, retaught the previous lesson. We've been taught that the feeding the 5,000 is a story by itself. It's not. It's a reteaching of the previous lesson when he sent them out two by two. Because, see, he sent them out without any food, without any money. They came back and reported all that they had done. So Jesus says, when they say, send them away so they can get something to eat, he says, you feed them. I sent you guys without any money and without any food. And you came back and told me all you did. You sound pretty impressive. Tell you what, I'm going to have a seat here on this rock. You feed them. Show me what you can do. Knock yourselves out. By the way, listen very carefully to what I'm going to say to you. Too many people say the Spirit of God has left that church. If there's a believer in that church, the Spirit of God hasn't left because he'll never leave or forsake us. But I believe in many of our churches today The reason why we're not experiencing the power of God and what God has promised in His Word, the prosperity that the Bible teaches, is because we're trying to do it in our own strength. We've got our church manual. We've got our constitution and our bylaws, how it's always to be done. We need a new pastor. Page 7 tells us what we're to do. Time to ordain deacons. Even though the scripture doesn't tell us how to do it, we have to do it the same way. We stop resting We stop asking. We stop doing what he's leading us to do by his power. And we try to do things in our own strength. We come up with marketing strategies and how can we get together and reach our neighborhood? It sounds so good. It's the flesh. And many of the churches today, Jesus hadn't left. He's just sitting on a rock saying, you feed him. But by the way, he reteaches them the lesson. How many basketfuls were picked up? One for each knucklehead to pick up. By the way, did they learn the lesson after the feeding of the 5,000? Now, let's go back to Mark chapter 6 real quick. Let's close with this tonight. In verse 45, immediately, this is after feeding of the 5,000. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. They couldn't even get across the lake without him. And about the fourth watch of the night, he meant to pass by them. But when they they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Look closely. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Do you see how the walking on the water is tied to the loaves? The loaves is tied to the feeding of the, uh, setting them out two by two. Folks, listen closely. When we rest when we do his plan for our lives by his power and not our own. I'm going to ask you, are you weary? Are you heavy laden? We say, Jim, was Jesus just talking to people that are needing to be saved? That's the beginning part of it. His rest is deep, folks. It's not just trusting and knowing you're going to heaven when you die. It's not just victory over sin. It's also living in the joy of knowing that you're doing what God prepared in advance for you to do by his power. And that happens on a daily basis. Too many people say to me, well, Jim, what does God want me to do then? What's God plans for my life? And when I was younger, I used to try to tell you because I thought I was the Holy Spirit. But I'm not. But I will make a statement to you that I have said before, and I'm going to keep saying until he takes me home. If you walk with Jesus every single day of your life you will end up exactly where you're supposed to be, exactly when you're supposed to be there. Stop trying to go do for him. Walk with him and enjoy his company. Spend time in his word. Spend time in prayer. And he will show you what it is he has for you to do. And you will find rest for your souls. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.